Welcome to the DFD, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we chat with industry leaders who share insights and their experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the DFD podcast. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. I'm excited to have a colleague of mine on this week, uh, Chelsea Gordon. Chelsea, um, maybe you could do a better job of explaining what your new title is. I know back a while ago you were with us with the Ontario team, so I know you're quite uh, well known around the Ontario market, but uh, I guess a few months ago you took on a new role and maybe you can explain to some of the listeners uh, what you're up to now. Awesome. Thanks, Keith. Yeah. So um, previous to this, I was the Ontario um, Dairy Technical Services Manager. So uh, basically helping support the sales team in technical from a science standpoint, um, understanding of different things. So very similar role, just I guess on a national role now. So my title is the Director of Dairy Technology application, which is kind of just a fancy title to say that um, some of our, our innovation and science and how it's being applied in the field, um, I'm, I'm responsible for overseeing that. So uh, training application of our, of our different innovations as far as additives um, and our, our ration balancing software models. Yeah, so that's exciting. So you, I know you've worked in the Ontario market for the better part of 10 years. Um, what have you learned, I guess, since you've kind of gone up to more of a national, a national position? Um, it's always interesting to hear how, how uh, different people approach things in a different way, right? So just understanding, uh, I guess, the differences with an Arcadian market, um, the different milk boards and how that's impacting how across the region we, we tend to have some slightly different strategies. Um, but that it, they're all very similar at the same time. So I, I guess that's that'd certainly be one thing. <laughs> well, that's good. But uh, that's not why we have you on here today. Um, you were telling me before this year, you're in New Brunswick right, right now, but I didn't know if you know this, but last week, it was hot in Ontario. So I thought it'd be a great opportunity to kind of talk with you about some nutritional strategies as we as we come into the summer with incentives and with uh, uh, all the heat stress and maybe some things that we can talk about that uh, producers can implement on their farms to kind of to help hit the, some of the extra milk incentives that they've got through the summer. So I guess the first thing that I, I kind of want to ask you about is is I know a lot of people in the industry you know, they refer to a temperature uh, humidity index, the THI index. And uh, I was wondering if you could maybe explain it to some of the listeners out there, uh, what that means and how that affects uh, cows. Yeah, sure. So the temperature humidity index is, is kind of just that. It's, it's a combination of looking at the temperatures that we're experiencing, as well as humidity, because I'd say historically, we tend to focus on just upper and lower critical temperatures. Uh, where animals are within kind of a thermal neutral zone where they're not having to change anything about their metabolism to combat heat. But you know as well as I do, Keith, that last week when it was it was super hot, it wasn't just the temperature that was impacting how you guys felt and dealt with that heat. It was the humidity as well. So going to a place that's 30 degrees and humid is a lot different than a dry, a dry 30 degrees. 
So the THI looks at kind of both those things and how the animal's actually reacting to, to those combinations. So um, typically what happens is when the animal starts to experience stress from it being too hot is her basal maintenance energy and how much uh, work she has to put into dealing with temperature actually starts to increase. So not only is she under stress because it's so hot, but she herself starts producing more heat to combat, combat heat stress. Um, and so we start to see things like increased respiratory rate, um, more drooling with a lot of those things that happen. Uh, we see changes in, in milk production, dry matter intake. We have a changes in reproduction and um, those are kind of the indicators of what's happening internally with her internal temperature starting to change that she's trying to fight uh, to keep that temperature, that, that thermal neutral zone and keep her internal temperature that 38 and a half degrees. So that's interesting. So they actually increase their internal temperature to abate the heat. Kind of. Um, so yeah, it just, it takes more work to do all these processes to get rid of the heat okay. that, that, um, that they, they exhibit, they, they work harder to get rid of it, which means that they're producing more heat, um, making them have to work even harder to, to, to maintain that, that, uh, cause that's most mammals, uh, we want to maintain a constant internal temperature. We get too hot. We're, we're obviously sick, right? So same idea is what happens to us when we get, when we get sick, our immune system starts to fight and challenge and that's what's causing most of our, our internal temperature increase. Yeah. So it's almost like a, I wouldn't say a fever, but maybe like a low grade, maybe I guess it is a fever, but a low grade fever to kind of help get rid of some of that uh, excess heat. I know cause last week we've seen it a lot, uh, a lot of high respiratory rates and a lot of, you know, yarding around water bowls and things like that. Like some typical signs that we see, uh, coming into the summer, which is kind of a surprise because we don't usually see that until later on, um, maybe after the second or third heat event, but it was so stinking hot here with, you know, hundred percent humidity. I, th I think just the cows just had to, they had to do something to, to try and mitigate that a little bit. So what are, what are some of the important things that producers can do, um, in the barn, I guess, around nutrition that can help these girls perform better and maybe abate some more of that, uh, that heat. Yeah, so there's a few things. Um, first and foremost, I think uh, we need to consider when you're thinking of nutrition is that not only heat stress, they're working harder to get rid of the heat to maintain that, that internal temperature. Um, they're eating less and they're eating less because they're kind of repositioning where they're putting their, their energy to try to dissipate that heat into their skin and their lungs. Um, to get rid of rid of this heat, and then they remove that blood um, to go to the skin and lungs, away from the digestive tract and reproduction and some of those things. But because of that, everything in the digestive tract slows down, so they actually eat quite a bit less. Not only are they eating less, but they're actually changing how they're using the the nutrients that they're getting um, to to mount an immune reaction. Um, to help deal with this as well. So the biggest thing would be trying to make sure that they we maintain intakes as best we can to support them. Um, so some strategies to, to try to increase dry matter intake, I would say um, number one is encouraging fresh feed. So oftentimes we can get away with mixing once a day in, in the winter months. 
Uh, I just don't think you can do that in the summer. Mixing for fresh feed, feeding more frequently and making sure this feed pushed up would be really critical. Not only to make sure, because we know cows eat more when they have fresh feed in front of them, but heating also starts to happen of the feed mm -hmm. itself. And often when that heating is happening, it's because there's the energy being released, right? So that energy that's being released by wild yeast growth or whatever else in these in the TMR in front of the cows means the cows can't get access to that energy. So um, increasing intake as much as possible by feeding more often, fresh feed, making sure that there's sufficient amount of feed at night because they'll eat more when it's cool um, will certainly be the big things and then encouraging fresh water so clean fresh water uh, we know that that ourselves we tend to eat more when we have a beverage to to wash it down <laughs> cows, cows are no different right so we need to make sure that they have have fresh clean water for sure well i thought it was interesting because like the amount of water that a cow will increase in the summer is quite astronomical and and i mean they're going to drink 70 percent of their water usage right so it's just funny like you go to the barns and you see four or five different cows you know yarded up around the water and oftentimes you see them you know even climbing up into the water bowls to cool their feet off it's like yeah, we just have to, I guess we just have to consider uh, making sure you get in those pens and check those water bowls to make sure they're clean because they're, I don't, I forget the number, but how many, like their smell is, I don't know, how many times more sensitive than ours? Like 300 times more sensitive. Yeah. It's crazy. They can, <laughs> so, yeah, and you so. think we go in the barns and there's, you don't want to stick your hand in there because your hand's going to smell the rest of the day. Uh, yeah. And we expect yeah. our cows to, to at least double their water consumption under heat stress to try to try to cool themselves, so. I was in uh, I was in one of my clients' barn one day, and he had his uh, youngest lad with him, and he's like, "Dad, I'm thirsty." He goes, "Okay, whatever." He goes, so he walks up to the couch off and starts drinking out of it, and I kind of look at the producer like, almost appalled, and he's like, "If it's good enough for my cows, it's good enough for my kids." <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, but. Um, and what about minerals? Like, I know we talk about DCAD when, uh, we talk about dry cow strategies and I know we talk about DCAD a little bit, um, when we're talking about heat abatement strategies, can you maybe explain, uh, the differences of, of what we're trying to accomplish? Yeah. So as I was mentioning earlier about all these strategies that these cows, um, implement to try to get rid of heat. A couple of the things that end up happening is they increase panting and they increase sweating. So with panting, you end up getting drooling and a lot of the bicarbonate from, from the drool is being lost and the panting is actually uh, changing the acid base balance in the cow. As well as sweating, we think of sodium potassium being lost quite a bit in that. So Often what happens is this increased respiratory rate, increased sweating and drooling, we're losing a lot of key minerals like sodium and potassium. And with the acid-base balance that we need to maintain, just salt won't really cut it from a sodium standpoint. So that's typically why we're offering sodium bicarbonate um, during heat stress times. A lot of people will put it right into the ration or free choice. And it's actually insane how much bicarb these cows will eat when offered free choice. And when we look at that total decad, it's actually the opposite of what we're trying to do in 
dry cows with a negative decad, we're trying to have a positive decad. So in, in dry cows, we're tending to be cautious on sodium and potassium. In milk cows, we want to increase it. And what they've tended to find is when we have an increase in decad in milk cows, we see an increase in not only their intakes um, quite a bit, but also their, their milk production. Um, and is there like a specific decad number, I guess we're looking for, like I know on a lot of dry cow strategies, whether you're looking for partial or fully acidified, you're anywhere from that, you know, minus five to minus 10 uh, number. Like what would the, what would the range be, I guess, for a, for a positive charge on that ration? Yeah. So we'd like to see it around 30. Um, and that can be accomplished reasonably easy um, with most diets by, by offering sodium bicarbonate, which probably would be, be the number one thing that we want to offer first. It, it tends to have the biggest impact on that decaf. Um, and, and as well, we can offer things like potassium carbonate uh, as a potassium source to increase that decad to around the 30, 30 to 40, I guess, would be the ideal. Um, but, but achieving a 30 would be, be pretty good response on, on both intakes and milk yields. And how does magnesium play a role in that too? Because I know it's more of a negatively charged ion, but you know, I was reading some stuff here where they're talking about increasing dietary um, magnesium up to like 0.4. So is it just the alkalinity of it or? That's exactly, it's, it's the alkalinity. And we know that magnesium and potassium um, have a lot of interactions with each other. So, so magox for sure, magnesium oxide as, as an alkalizer in the rumen again, um, has quite a dramatic effect on milk fat yields. Okay. So it's more or less looking at that and just making sure that there there's adequate supplies, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And increasing it will help, will help stabilize that room pH a bit too. Right. Yeah. Okay. Is there any other things that like yeast or whatever that you can add in, in to help kind of stabilize things as well? Yeah. So as I was talking about with, with, in heat stress, we tend to see a decrease in intake, rumination slows down. And with that, plus the combination of the drool that we're losing that contains that bicarb, we actually see a drop in, in rumen pH, usually by around 0.2 to 0.5 in the summer months, feeding the exact same diet. So that's that's no change in, in dietary factors. That's more just how the cow is compensating um, to get rid of the, the that she's experiencing. And so with all those things, we see a slowdown in rumination, a decreased passage rate, and a, a decrease in fiber digestion. So anything that we can do to help stabilize that rumen pH or encourage fiber digestion, we'd have a benefit. And you mentioned yeast, Keith, that's a, that's a great one um, because it helps stabilize the rumen pH and helps improve fiber digestion in the cow as well. Um, as well as it tends to have um, there's been some work that was done recently looking that it, it may actually have help the, the uh, rumen epithelial as well in during so the times of stress. So the little fingers in there. That's right. The skin cells in the rumen, right? So yeah, yeah. Um, it, it helps the, the rumen skin cells better protect against, against any stressors also. So yeast, oftentimes we'd recommend kind of doubling the rate that you're typically feeding on a regular diet for, for encouraging fiber digestion during times of heat stress. That's a, like, there's a lot of things that go on. And I know one thing we had talked about, like, I just want to kind of back up a little bit is we talked about, uh, heat, like, uh, heating and feed and 
maybe we should talk about some things that we can do to kind of to mitigate that as well. Yeah. So heating and feed, I guess there's two things you can talk about with heating and feed. Yeah. So first of all, when you think of the cow herself, her breaking down feed creates heat, right? Mm-hmm. We, she's a, she's a pretty good recycler and, and breaks down a lot of this, the, the fiber from feedstuffs that no other animal can because the, the way that she digests things. And so oftentimes when we feed, we tend to want to feed higher fiber during times of heat stress because our butter fat decreases and we know that increasing fiber typically helps with our, our milk fat test, but fiber tends to create more heat than, than other types of, of dietary things like carbs or, or fats or even proteins um, that will really, that takes less energy to break down than fiber. So that's one aspect about, about thinking about heat in feed, uh, as well as I think what you're probably referring to, Keith, was, was the TMR itself and it being yeah. stable. Like in the feed bunk is more or less, you know, Absolutely. lots of times you, you walk down the feed rail and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the producer could be using sprinklers or, you know, high fiber diets I find are, are heating maybe a little bit more and you get, you know, it just gets hot to the touch, right? Um, so if you could maybe talk about some of the science behind why that happens, I think that'd be, be really good for the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So we know that naturally when we put up different forages, we have things that come in with it, right? Um, so wild yeast would be one that, that typically comes in with our forages that we're harvesting. And once the, the feed is stable in, in the silo or the bunk, uh, there tends to not be any more changes in, in growth. It is pretty critical to maintaining um, that stable, stable microbial population in that fermented mm-hmm. feed also. And so what happens is if, we, if we're opening a phase too early or we have feed um, that, that is left, that's we've basically re-injected with oxygen as we're moving it around, those wild yeast start to grow and mold um, and, and, and they can grow at a rapidly alarming, like an alarmingly rapid rate of growth that happens. And that's when we're starting to see that, that heating in, in these forages is that, that growth and production of these wild yeast, these, these, um, these bad yeast that are basically consuming the energy from the feed that we want to be conserving for our cows. Yeah. They're so, eating all the good stuff, right? Like the sugar and. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're pre-digesting it, pre-breaking it down before it gets into, into the rumen, right? Yeah. Similar types of microbes. <clears throat> so bunk face management, I'd say would be number one, making sure that, uh, that we're not injecting any extra oxygen that we need to into the, in the, the bunk face, um, making sure that's nice and clean. Uh, when, when we're going in there with a, um, with the bucket that we're not lifting and in increasing the air in there and feeding more frequently, of course, as well. And just making sure there's a stable bunk face. Other things that can help uh, stabilize that feed up front would be things like inoculants. And some of the inoculants actually have stabilizers as well um, that will help kind of after the fact when feed out or as well as offering things uh, that actually stabilize that, that TMR once it's mixed. So there's lots of different TMR stabilizers out there on the market. Um, things like potassium carbonate as well. Um, calcium I carbonate, totally I think. It. Calcium propionate. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That's something like, yeah. oh, that's yeah. 
yeah. yeah. TMR stabilizers, there's lots of different ones in the market. So um, there's some commercialized ones, uh, other ones like uh, calcium propionates um, and some different types of types of acids that you can add to, to stabilize mm-hmm. the TMR to prevent that growth as well. Yeah, I know. And the other thing too, I think people forget about is keeping the floors clean, like having a clean surface for the cows, because you get a lot of those concentrates and they just kind of get, um, mashed up because you're either running over with a skid steer when you're pushing and things like that. Like you get that cake on the floor that I think helps, uh, fuel the fire for heating because you got all that bacteria there already and it can just sit there and kind of smolder away. And then you're adding new substrate to it all the time when you're adding adding the tmr and then there's fresh sugar for those those bugs to uh to utilize so i i think that's one of the most important things as well i think uh i think we need to talk about calves too because i think calves are maybe a little bit uh the forgotten animal when it comes to heat stress and is there anything that we can really do to kind of help calves uh get through some of this uh the heat stress in the summer as well yeah, so I know you wanted me to focus mostly on nutritional, but to be honest, yeah. I feel like we can't really talk about any nutritional strategies without without first accepting the fact that there's so many management things that we can do that are way more cost effective than than changing the diets up. So um, yeah. making sure that we can increase ventilation, provide shade, um, all those things I think are probably more crucial than than any dietary change. So. With calves, I'd say um, propping up the hutches, different things like that, uh, to just increase that airflow and and allow the calves to to use their own heat abatement strategies with how we're mm-hmm. changing uh, changing blood flow and things like that make a difference. You will tend to see during heat stress in general. Um, because of this increase in, in workload that these animals are trying to to get rid of the internal temperatures that they're experiencing, they don't gain weight as well. Yeah. As well with um, they they tend to lose um, lose protein. Yeah. In muscle gain, right? So um, protein is kind of an odd one though because protein takes a lot of energy to break down as well. So we don't want to overdo it with any protein. Um, because it actually can increase heat as well. It takes so much yeah. energy to, to break that down. So I think just making sure we have a, a balanced diet would be very crucial in in all of our in all of our groups, um, but calves certainly as well. Making sure that we're not overdoing it with too much proteins and, and things like that. And I think we have to circle back to the water, 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 water. Absolutely. Um, have you heard of any producers, you know, feeding electrolytes, say in a third feeding or anything like that, that calves in the summer? I know I, I hear rumblings of it, but uh, I think it's more common south of the border when you get into some warmer climates than it maybe is here in Canada. Yeah, I think it's probably more more common south of the border, um, but it, it's it's not a bad idea, right? So we think once again that extra sweating, everything else. Um, it can actually lead to dehydration. So they may be using it um, as a strategy there. I, I'd say there's a, making sure that we're using the right electrolyte is probably pretty mm-hmm. critical because some of those electrolytes um, could could be causing some, some more damage as well. Um, and actually Mike Steele has, uh, one of his students is is working with him, Juliette Wilms, who is, is 
one of our R&D team in the Netherlands. Um, yep. She's doing a lot of work on osmolality. So maybe she's a future guest, Keith, for, for talking <laughs> about electrolytes and calves. Yeah, I know it's uh it's an important one, but anything we can do to kind of abate it. And I know they're already, you know, we've all seen that work from um, Jeffrey Dahl about, you know, how calves that are born under heat stress conditions already gain less and will be less productive life. So I think anything that we can do to kind of help them through this time period will, will really be a benefit down the road. And, you know, it's hard to think about two years down the road with calves. I know a lot of us get pretty short sighted on that stuff, but, uh, but it's real and, and it's been researched and it's, it's, uh, it's something to think about as well. It's a really important thing that you just mentioned, Keith. We tend to focus on heat stress with the milk cows because they're the ones who are, who are paying the bills and, and we know that they're working hard and it. We see it very, yeah. very easily in this drop in intake, drop in milk, increased respiratory rates. Um, but I think probably the, the unforgotten group in this is the dry cows because um, from a heat abatement standpoint, the negative impacts on what's happening, like you just mentioned it, to the dry cows that are carrying a calf, for, the, for that dry cow herself, her next lactation, she produces much less if she's if she's dry and not, and, and goes through heat stress during her dry period. But her calf, her entire lifetime performance is impacted, right? So yeah, a lot of those heat abatement strategies like shade, water access, ventilation, sprinklers, I'd say is probably even more critical with our dry cows than, than even our milk cows or, or calves. You know, I used to think when, you know, if you had a decision tree on where to cool cows down, number one, parlor. And then a lot of people would say number two would be um, sprinklers or misters in the, in, in the cow pen. But I think we really have to think about dry cows. So either A, putting sprinklers on the rail or B, moving them into the parlor and soaking them there if, if that's the most available option to do it. Because I think we definitely forget about them all the time. And, you know, with all these incentives looming and this extra milk and things like that, like we need to do everything we possibly can to make sure that a cow has the greatest success in the next lactation. So, you know, five years ago, I would have thought, you know, cool the milk cows in the parlor, cool them out in the pen, then the dry cows relax. But I think the dry cows are, are a number two and maybe even a number one, but you know, you tangibly can't see the effects of it where you can with cows. So it's a lot easier for a producer to make the decision to spend some money to do some heat abatement in the, in the parlor than it is to on the dry cows. So. I think, I think you nailed it, Keith. Um, Elanco actually put a really good heat abatement book together uh, with, a, with a lot of, of the researchers who are doing this work in, in heat stress. And their priority was just as you said it in the, in the holding pens and then number two was maternity pens and the dry cow pens uh, well before the lactating cows. So, um, so yeah, I agree. We, 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 we know that there's all sorts of negative effects in dry cows that experience heat stress. Um, we, we know we see this slump a couple months after we're experiencing heat stress and milk production. And, and that a lot has to do with, with the, the animals that are now fresh um, that, that we're experiencing heat stress. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something interesting about protein loss in cows and as it relates to like body conditioner or body weight. 
Um, can you maybe touch on that a little bit? Because I don't know if this is an antiquated thought or I don't know, but last week, like, you know, just looking at bulk tanks, I'm seeing a lot higher MUNs than I normally would and nothing's really changed. So is it just a dietary thing where maybe they're eating less and, and the MUNs are, are spiking or is it, are we seeing mobilization of protein and, and that affecting MUNs? It's a great question. So um, as you know, Keith, uh, we had um, Dr. Lance Baumgard here a couple of years ago and did a bit of a road show with producers and as well as speaking with our team and how he kind of explained this really resonated to me. So I will try to do it justice. Um, basically what he said was that um, he, his, his group did a lot of studies looking at heat stressed animals and then animals that he fed, like they were being heat stressed. So limiting mm -hmm. limit feeding basically. And we knew that um, they, they decreased draw matter intake by about 30% in general, but they, they have an even more dramatic loss in milk production. And um, when they kept looking at this, they found that they also tended to lose body weight. Um, and they also lost changes in, in glucose, circulating glucose levels in their body. And so you think, how does the protein and glucose kind of relate, but it relates in how they're reacting to insulin. So normally a cow eats, um, this is being broken down, provides glucose, which is then used to the mammary gland um, to produce milk or it's stored in tissues, right? In, in muscles. And then when she needs additional energy, um, she typically would break down fat reserves. Mm -hmm. um, like you think of negative energy balance in fresh cows. During heat stress though, um, insulin is being released in response to the immune cells being activated. Um, normally insulin is released. Um, glucose tends to be, to, to have that change. It's either being used in milk or stored in tissues, but under an immune reaction, um, glucose becomes the source of fuel for the immune system. And, and it can, they've, the group has shown that it can be quite dramatic. So you think of a, a bag of sugar, right? A, a two kilo mm -hmm. bag of sugar is typically what the immune system is using in a day. So huge change in, in what's happening with glucose and where it's being used. And because of this large shift in glucose as an energy source for the immune system, it may be favoring a breakdown of muscle tissue to get more glucose via gluconeogenesis. So like you said, we have this muscle breakdown, they drop in body weight from a muscle reserve standpoint, and it, it very well could be impacting the, the circulating and it would be impacting the circulating nitrogen that you're seeing. So it's like a keto diet. It's converting protein into glucose to, uh, to like through ketones, right? Not through ketones. So ketones okay. would be, um, that'd be more when there's fat breakdown. Okay. That's using ketone bodies, right? So you think okay. when they're in negative energy balance, they break down fat mm -hmm. stores and that produces ketones. This is actually using muscle. Okay. They're breaking down muscle. We're in a diet. We want to conserve the protein in the muscles. Yeah. yeah okay. Down fat. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was interesting. And yeah, like I know you did a presentation there last week and I just, I thought that was one of the more interesting points coming out of that because you know, looking at these bulk tanks and seeing elevated MUNs and nothing's changed other than, you know, we're experiencing 30 degree weather with hundred percent humidity. I just want to shift gears a little bit. And I know, um, there's been 
I know I mentioned in the past here in the podcast already, but there's been lots of incentives and and things um, announced lately. So can we maybe just touch on a few nutritional and maybe a few management strategies just to kind of um, help producers uh, meet these demands in the milk market? So I was wondering about, uh, you know, maybe a couple of management things that, that you think that producers can do and maybe a couple of nutritional strategies. Some of the things we already talked about. So encouraging dry matter intake the best we can. So fresh feed, preventing sorting though as well um, mm-hmm. will help from a milk fat standpoint. Absolutely. Increasing water because we know milk is 85% water. So making sure we have available water. And then the other thing I'd say is, is we've, during heat stress, we have cows that are, they need more energy. So making sure that we are avoiding energy deficits, right? So some different Mm -hmm. strategies that we can do um, within the diet in oftentimes uh, under non-heat stress conditions, it may mean that we, we try to offer more grains into the diets. From a heat stress standpoint, that may make sense because the grains create less heat than breaking down fibers. But then, of course, we know that it could have a negative impact on the rumen, and we already naturally have this decrease in rumen pH. So oftentimes what ends up happening and is likely, um, and because of all these things, right, is we we don't want to increase grain because we're worried about rumen pH. We tend to go towards things like increasing fat. So fat's a good way to increase the energy density of the diet in a, in a fairly safe way from a rumen pH standpoint. The source of fat uh, is important though as well, because we know that type, certain types of fat sources, kind of the, the, the vegetable based unsaturated type fats can actually cause havoc in the rumen and, and, and have negative impacts on a milk fat standpoint. So that's where a lot of this, the, uh, the butter gate and, and, and some of the things mm-hmm. that we've been seeing have been focusing on, on this, the higher C16s and, and uh, saturated fats like palm fats, but it, it's a nutritional strategy to support these animals through this time of, of ele- elevated energy demands um, and, and get her through to support her, her own systems in a, in a safe way. So just to increase the caloric intake and in what they're already like, if you're, you're just increasing the energy density, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. There's some things you can do from a carbohydrate standpoint as well. Um, so with, when you think of, if heat stress, uh, you could just be changing or altering the particle size. Um, so maybe you're going from a really, really ground grain to, um, to, to a slower source. So mm-hmm. not as fine could be an option and, and, uh, other things like, like room modifiers. So there's certain things out there that we know shift the bug population, the room microflora yep. population, and then it actually alters what types of the proportion of volatile fatty acids that are being produced. So if we shift towards propionate, it's actually, uh, it's an efficient, it's it increases efficiency of the rumen. Um, and, and, and it uses that energy a little bit better. So uh, there's a few different things in the market that, that have been shown to, to have a change in those, the VFA productions. Um, and so things like, uh, like fermentin, things like RM104 um, that have been shown to kind of alter those those VFA uh, could be options to that we, we look at during heat stress as well to just better use the carbs that we are feeding. 
Yeah. So it's just more like efficient utilization, like turning, it's like adding a little, uh, I don't know, like nitro to the room and we're just a little bit more efficient in, uh, in utilizing the energy that, that she's already taking in. Yeah. And actually the other thing that's neat about, about things that are shifting towards more propionate, um, is it, it reduces the heat of feeding too. Right. Okay. Um, and is an amino acid sparing as well. So it should reduce that nitrogen excretion that's happening in the urine or, or in the blood too. Interesting. And what about, uh, what about maybe some management strategies? Like, does it make sense to shorten up some dry periods on some older cows or go three X or, or what are your thoughts on some of those things? Absolutely. So from an incentive point of view, um, increasing the, the frequency of milking absolutely will make a difference on, on milk production. Um, the dry period I I'd be cautious of, but absolutely it could be a strategy. We just have to be cautious of how much shorter we make that, that dry period. Um, because of course, if you go too short, there's some negative implications with that as well. So, well, um, yeah, like I know some producers, like if they're sitting, you know, 60 day average, 65 day average, you know, shortening that up to 50, I don't yeah. think will cause much of an effect, especially I would, I would spare that on heifers maybe on like first lactation cows, but second and third lactation cows, I think you can, that's a good strategy. You get an extra week or 10 days of milk out of them without really changing much. So. Was there any final thoughts that you had, you know, things that you might just want to touch on a little bit more, things that uh, you want to cover um, about heat abatement and nutritional strategies, Chelsea? I think the one thing that I, I can't say enough, Keith, there's there's lots of different nutritional things that we can try beyond kind of having a balanced diet and, and making sure we're supporting the cow's uh, nutrient needs. Most of them are Band-Aids. Yeah. And I, I say that um, because because we're just trying to overcome a problem um, that ultimately is best and easiest, easiest managed with, with heat abatement. When we think shade, ventilation, sprinklers, um, all of those different things to reduce the temperature of these cows. Um, and I think oftentimes like it doesn't seem like it's a, it's because of the, the, um, the overhead costs and, and the costs all at once, I, I would imagine. Um, but you think what happens, we experience heat stress year over year. And by installing some of those things or um, investing in them, uh, I think we're, we're probably better off than investing in some of these nutritional changes uh, that we can do. So um, investing in those, those fans above the dry cows or sprinklers in the, in the feed rail uh, for the milk cows. Um, and yeah. I'd say those would be, be the number one. And then just anything we can do to encourage fresh, cool feed in front of the cows. And water. Be, and, and absolutely water. <laughs> I know water is always one that gets number forgotten one about nutrient. a lot. Yeah. Number one nutrient this time of year. And it's just amazing on how much more of those cows will drink. Um, and it, and it leads directly into dry matter intake. So the more they drink, the more they eat. I think I might have to get a scrub brush and walk through some barns. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Makes a big difference. And those, uh, those Richie bowls, making sure you're lifting, uh, yeah. lifting and moving things up. I've seen some pretty nasty lids. Yeah. It's like a grade nine science project sometimes looking at them underneath <laughs> the lids. So <laughs> <laughs> anyways, Chelsea, uh, I appreciate your time today. Um, have fun in Atlantic Canada. I know it's a little bit cooler than it is here in uh, Ontario. Actually a really nice day today. Nice and breezy, but, uh, Thanks for your time today, and, and I appreciate you coming back on the podcast. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, Keith. Hopefully I answered all your questions. Thanks for listening. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the dairy team at Trout Nutrition Canada and our Suregain dealer partners. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast player and please leave us a review. If you'd like more information about today's discussions, please reach out. We have left our contact information in the show notes. I would also like to extend a special thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.